Hey everyone, thanks for coming. I added the paper that we will be discussing to the chat. Um, I'll pin the presentation in a minute and uh, we'll start on top of the hour. So uh, feel free to share the room if you think this is interesting and we will start shortly. Thank you. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for coming. Um, the paper link is posted in the chat and check out the presentation and we'll start on top of the hour. So thank you for coming, should be really interesting. It was hypothesized a lot, um, but I think this is the first proof of this mechanism. Hi, Kiyomi, how are you? Welcome. <laughs> Hi, good. How are you? Good, good. I hope I'm saying your name right, by the way. Yeah, Kiyomi, you got Kiyomi. it. Kiyomi, yeah. okay, perfect. I was, you know, giving everyone a heads up when we'll start and what this is about, so how exciting oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too. Um, so I don't know if you took a look at my slide. Do most people open up the slides, do you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Great. Because it it gets kind of technical. I will be describing some plots and everything like that. So. Oh yeah, yeah, wonderful. And. Okay. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's like similar to the approach of brain function. When it doesn't work, people will complain. So that's how I know <laughs> <laughs> people use the slides. <laughs> 
Perfect. And, oh, we have a previous <laughs> guest speaker that's listening in. Titus, how are you? Welcome. Nice seeing you here. If you want to come up, just let me know. I'll, I'll give you an invite. She presented really interesting research here, too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hi, Titus. How are you? It's a while ago. I don't know. When did you present uh, here? Um, I forgot. It's a few months ago. So <laughs> do you still? Ah, there you go. Sorry. Hey. I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to barge in, but this looked really interesting. So I wanted to come. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, me, kill me. Um, and uh, Tita, uh, did you start your postdoc yet? How is it? Are yeah, it's going it? great. Yeah, yeah, it's going great. Thank you. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Oh, David, thank you. So David said on March 2nd. My God, that's a while ago. The time passes like crazy. <laughs> you gave a talk on March, in March 2nd, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you're liking your postdoc. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you again now? In Princeton. In Princeton. Yes, yeah. right. Oh, you're not far from me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's nice. So maybe you'll give a talk next year about what you're doing in your postdoc. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. it's actually very like today's topic and mine are very similar. So I'm very excited. Ooh. Yeah. What's the what's the gist of what you're studying? Um, also looking at epigenetic inheritance um, mm -hmm. in C. elegans, like okay. uh, learned avoidance and inheritance of that. So yeah. Oh, nice. It's interesting. Yeah, your talk looks very cool. Yeah, <laughs> I love forward. going to the posters and hearing talks about the like functional memory of um, using epigenetic inheritance, because we really dig down into the mechanism and the carriers, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So we don't get to look too much at the function. Um, mm -hmm. So it's always fun to see it in practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's already an interesting preview to the discussion. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad you're still, that you're still following the program and oh yeah, yeah no, I do I do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's amazing such cool topics oh thank you <laughs> yeah yesterday uh, it's interesting uh like we go really by what um the guest speakers the format they want to do so some people just want like general discussion back and forth and um yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, to get to know the people that do all this work, right? I think that's mm -hmm. that's a really interesting part. I enjoy that a lot. Yeah, we're about to start in a couple of minutes. So um, in the meantime, let me share while talking with you guys. I forgot to share on Twitter that we are starting. So let me do that really quick before we go. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. So first of all, thank you um, to, you know, to go through the trouble to make an account and come here. I'll hope you'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, we really appreciate that. 
that uh, people go through this trouble for us. But what I really like about the replay settings here on Clubhouse is that all the links uh, to the presentations, they stay active. So it's like almost the same experience as um, being live. Just you cannot ask questions. But other than that, you can check out the chat and everything. That's why we kind of like it. So great. I think we can slowly start with introductions. People will continue to join and uh, we'll go from there. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome here to our guest speaker um, and um, Kiyomi. And before we start, let me give you a short introduction so you get to know her a little bit. Um, Kiyomi Kanashiro, she received her bachelor's from um, UCSC in neuroscience and she also did her PhD there in the Department of Molecular Cellular and Developmental Biology and she did that in the lab of Susan Strom where um, and her research focused on testing whether histone modifications could serve as epigenetic carriers transmitting gene expression information across generations and um, after that, she did her postdoc at, um, or she is currently also a postdoc at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in Novato, um, California. <clears throat> and there she investigates how different metabolic states and the byproducts associated with those states influence aging and age-related diseases. And usually, before we start, we ask a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. Oh, definitely. Perfect. So um, our first question would be, when did you realize or when did your interest or um, spark for science begin? Was it something you always wanted to do since childhood or was it maybe a book or class that you took that kind of started? you to you know follow this curiosity or follow science yeah um i i don't know that i really knew it was an avenue probably until like high school and taking you know high school level science classes and realizing that it just um it jived with the way i think i've always thought i've always been really curious with how things work i think as most scientists are um, and so it just clicked. It clicked with the way my brain works and the type of problems I like to think about and what I'm just naturally interested in. And, you know, that translates into what I was, you know, I, I excelled at in school as well. So math and science was just kind of kind of my jam. Um, and then I, you know, as when I went to college, I decided to go into the, the field of science and it, I, I felt around a little bit, you know, with physics. Um, and then settled on neuroscience for my bachelor's, but I really have wide ranging interests um, across all the scientific disciplines. So I think it was just a good fit for me. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's really interesting. Um, and that you're curious about all kinds of science. So, um, yeah, we, we, I think here, at least myself, maybe as reflected in our program. That's also the case for me. So mm -hmm. I love to hear that. And do you think 
I'll get to the next question in a second, but just a follow up. Do you think that also like this broader interest of yours um, lead to this creative and really interesting research projects that you um, that you did? Like, do you think that helps? Yeah, I mean, I I think that science is a very creative endeavor. So we have to, you know, be able to visualize and create models for something that we only get the tiniest pieces of information of slices of information in time, development, the only area of the cell we can look at. I mean, we're given very little information about the whole picture, right? And we're trying to piece that together, you know, in a in a creative way um, to generate a model. And then we have to come up with creative ways to, to answer very specific questions. So I think it's this nice toggling between really logical linear thinking and a very creative process at the same time. And I feel like it scratches both itches for me. Um, so I think it's useful um, to have that, you know, ability to toggle, to toggle between both of those in science. Ah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's so true. And uh, yesterday, actually, Ed Boyden was here and he said that uh, he doesn't really see this the 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 classification we make between the different fields of science he thinks that's very artificial and he doesn't really see it that way uh, so it's kind of a overlap there it's really interesting and um is there like how did you choose then the specific project types with inheritance epigenetics is there maybe a background story to this project because it's kind of I think an uh, interesting breakthrough that a lot of people theorized about. So is there like a backstory how you were led to this or how you came about to do this specific project and also to study this field? Um, I guess it's sort of a mix. So, you know, I, I was in the MCD program or PBSE, the big umbrella program, um, program for biomedical sciences and engineering at UCSC for my PhD among which I could choose from, you know, faculty, many, many faculty and many different um, projects. And so it was a blend of both interest in the topic, but had a huge um, weight on the mentor as well. So um, PhD, you know, your mentor is such an important part of your training and development. And Susan Strom was just such an incredible um, scientist and, and leader um, that I was very drawn to, to training with her. But at the same time, I thought that the research was very um, compelling. Um, just with the knowledge, you know, with the epidemiological findings that really suggest that this type of inheritance is happening in humans, but we just have no, no way to really study it mechanistically in humans. Um, and so breaking that down into very targeted experiments to try and see how something like this could be possible um, using a simple model system was, you know, very compelling for me. So I joined for those two region, region, reasons, both the topic and the mentor.
So yeah, that's I'm I'm glad you had such a great mentor and um, that you're yeah you got to enjoy your PhD because you know it's it's lucky if we have that right there. Yeah, one more reports about PhD students having depression and issues. So it's wonderful to hear. I'm so glad. <laughs> and, <laughs> And it led us to having this discussion. So um, thank you again for taking the time. The presentation is for everyone pinned on top of the room. So feel free to click it, everyone. And the stage is yours, Kiyomi. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So um, yeah, if you can look at the presentation, it'll help. I will be um, discussing data, but I will try for those of you that aren't opening the slideshow to at least describe the rationale for why we did the experiments and what the findings mean um, in terms of the bigger question that I was trying to answer. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to share uh, my PhD work with you and really I'll be focusing on um, the findings from my, my latest publication titled Sperm Inherited H3K27 Trimethylation Epialleles Are Transmitted Transgenerationally in Cis. And that's a mouthful, um, but it's my goal by the end of this presentation that everybody you know, understands what this means and how it was a contribution to the field. So moving on to slide two, um, I wanted to back up and just give a sense of what the big question we're asking um, and, and trying to understand. And that's how does inherited information beyond the genome influence the development and health of future generations? And so when we say inherited information beyond the genome, we're talking about beyond DNA sequence, beyond genetics, beyond genes, the typical Mendelian inheritance that we think about. And really it's epigenetic information that we're talking about. How is that being transmitted across generations and how does it influence the health and development of the next generation? So on slide three, I just wanted to introduce epigenetics. Um, so the literal translation is above or on top of genetics, um, but the definition we'll be really using is heritable changes in gene expression that's not accompanied by changes in DNA sequence. Um, and, and I'm going to describe these different flavors that this um, epigenetic information can be carried in, but it's um, shown over here, histone modifications, DNA methylation, and non-coding RNAs, but I'll get into that a little bit more in a, in a slide or two. So moving on to the next slide, slide number four. Um, my favorite example of of the power of epigenetic gene regulation is really just looking in us. Um, we are comprised of various tissues that look and function so differently. And if we look at the cells that comprise those tissues, they are very different in form and function. And that's despite them having exactly the same genome. Um, it's just that those genomes are deployed in different ways through epigenetic regulation. And that's what allows them to achieve those very, very different specialized form and function. Um, and the question really is uh, how that epigenetic information can be transmitted maybe through cell division or not only through cell division as depicted on the right, but across generations. So the more traditional way of thinking about how this gene expression information carried in the form of epigenetic information can be passed from a parent cell to a daughter cell. So you have the parent cell, they have a genome, but they also have an epigenetic blueprint of how they're using that genome. 
such that when they duplicate their genome, they're also able to duplicate that epigenetic blueprint. And what this allows is that both daughter cells inherit not only the genome, but kind of instructions on how to use it so that they can maintain that same sort of genetic epigenetic profile and gene expression program as the parent cell. And this allows for, you know, the maintenance of, of cell identity. Um, so moving on to slide five. And so the question is, can this type of epigenetic information that's carried in sperm and egg um, be serving similar purposes to instruct genome usage in the next generation? And so sperm and egg carry a lot of epigenetic information. Um, they carry histone modifications. So DNA is wound around histones like thread on a spool. And these histones have tails that sort of jut out of the spool and they can be chemically modified by enzymes. And then those chemical modifications act like flags for gene expression or repression. Sometimes it can be physical, like the modification can actually make these histones, these spools sort of pack up tightly and therefore make the gene less accessible to the machinery that would turn it on. Sometimes it can loosen it up and sometimes it's just um, a way to interact with the machinery that's either gonna turn on or off um, that gene that it's packaging. So that's one form of epigenetic gene expression regulation. Um, you can also have modifications that are made directly to the, to the gene itself, to the DNA. Um, so here I'm showing DNA methylation and similar, it, it works through a similar mechanism where it can flag that gene for expression or repression. And then a slightly different flavor of epigenetic carrier is like the non-coding RNAs. So unlike histone modifications and DNA methylation that really sit on the gene they're regulating typically, um, non-coding RNAs are floating around um, in the nucleoplasm or cytoplasm of the cell and they actually can intercept gene expression on its way to full gene expression. So the gene may have been turned on at the level of the DNA where it was transcribed into RNA, but at that point, those non-coding RNAs can actually intercept that and prevent it from going on to the next step and translating it to protein. And so these are the three main flavors of um, epigenetic regulation. So moving on to slide six, um, so unlike the genome and the DNA sequence, which is fixed, um, in fact, you know, women are born with all the eggs that they'll ever have. And so the genetic material in those eggs is fixed. But epigenetic information is kind of interesting because it's malleable. Um, we know that there's life experiences, environmental exposures um, that can change the epigenetic information in our cells, including sperm and egg. And so the question really is, um, you know, can these, this epigenetic information that is malleable by life experience be passed to offspring in this epigenetic information, in the form of this epigenetic information, and then go on to actually influence gene expression in offspring, and therefore have the, the potential to influence health and development as well. And so we, we're trying to understand this really complicated process. Um, and in, in our part, we were focusing on uh, paternal inheritance. So we're looking at sperm chromosomes. We focused on a particular epigenetic carrier. So we were focusing on histone modifications as a carrier. 
and specifically on the conserved mark of repression, H3K27 trimethylation. And we used um, a, a simple model organism, C. elegans, a tiny uh, roundworm about the size of a comma in a sentence, um, a really powerful model system to try and address some of the, the mechanism of how this type of um, information may be passed across generations. So on slide seven, I'm just showing what does this kind of chemical modification I'm talking about look like? So I told you the histones form what's like a spool around which DNA is wrapped. Um, one of those histones is histone H3. And that tail I was talking about, you know, has a string of amino acids on it that can be modified by different enzymes. And those modifications can mean different things in terms of gene regulation. And the one that I'm going to be focusing is on is H3K27 trimethylation. And it's called this because it's a mark on H3, histone H3. It, the mark happens on lysine 27, which the symbol for lysine is K, so K27. And the modification it lies down is three methyl groups that get added to it. So H3K27 trimethylation. And this is a widely conserved mark of repression from worms to humans. Um, and it's, it's generated by the enzyme polycomb repressive complex 2. Um, we refer to it as PRC2. And so on slide, the next slide, which I can't see the number of, oh, slide 8. Um, we showed in worms that this mark um, is inherited into the embryo on sperm chromosomes. We showed that it's inherited on both sperm and egg, but here I'm focusing on showing that it, it gets into the embryo um, on sperm chromosomes. So what you can see in the top row of images is the two pronuclei in the one cell embryo. This is when the oocyte and the sperm chromosomes have not yet united, so we can tell them apart. And when you mate a wild type father to a mother that lacks PRC2, she generates egg chromosomes that lack that repressive mark. And so we can see clearly that the sperm chromosomes come in bearing this mark. And importantly, when that embryo divides into two cells, so it duplicates its um, genome, that epigenome is coming along with those sperm chromosomes and it's staying where it was inherited. So the egg chromosomes stay unmarked and the sperm chromosomes stay marked. So this is the transmission of this information. It came from the father on the sperm chromosomes. It's passing through cell division. So this was really the foundation upon which I asked the next set of questions um, to try and um, get at that big question I was talking about. So on slide nine, I'm just um, highlighting some of the questions that we'll be answering during this presentation. And so it's what happens in offspring that inherit sperm chromosomes that lack this repressive H3K27 trimethylation? Um, are genes aberrantly upregulated or misexpressed? I mean, if we're we're talking about epigenetic information coming in. We want to know if it's actually having an effect on offspring gene expression. So losing a repressive mark that's inherited, you would expect upregulation if its, if its goal is to repress genes in the offspring. And then do tissues, different tissues in the offspring upregulate the same or different genes? Really trying to ask like what tissues are actually affected and and what might be the mechanism of how those are affected. And then are genes upregulated specifically from the unprotected sperm-derived chromosome? So this is getting at um, 
is it directly affecting the gene expression of the genes that it packaged, you know, after it's after cell division has happened for multiple rounds? And then do inherited chromatin states and gene upregulation persist into the next generation, so into grand offspring? And in the field of epigenetics, what this is is, is transgenerational epigenetic inheritance where it crosses three generations. And then really the important part is what about developmental consequences? You know, if it changes gene expression, does this translate into some impact on offspring health and development? So the experimental approach on the next slide, um, the way we can generate this situation is we mate wild type mothers. Um, so they generate egg chromosomes that have this repressive mark on some genes. Um, and we mate her to a father that lacks that enzyme PRC2. And so he completely lacks H3K27 trimethylation on his sperm chromosomes. And we refer to the offspring um, of this union as K27-methyl-3-M+, because maternal was positive for K27-methylation, and P-, because the paternal genome lacked this methylation. And our strategy is to compare these worms, um, these M plus P minus worms, to epigenetic, uh, to M plus P plus, a control. Control worms that inherited the normal wild type pattern of these marks, but are epigenetically identical. So getting back to that an original definition of epigenetics, these are genetically identical, but epigenetically distinct individuals. And they differ in the fact that their sperm genome either came in marked with this repressive mark or lacking it. And so looking at the next slide, um, we, to address this, we profiled um, by RNA-seq various tissues in the F1 generation. We looked at um, newly hatched larvae, which was our proxy for somatic cells. So they're 90, over 99% soma. So neuron, muscle, intestine, hypodermis. Um, and then we also profiled male and female germlines in that generation. And then to get at the transgenerational question, we also um, profiled uh, F2 generation worms that were genetically identical to their mothers. So for the first data slide on slide 12, um, are genes aberrantly upregulated when the sperm genome is inherited without this repressive mark. And so, like I said, if sperm inherited K27 methylation is serving as an intergenerational epigenetic carrier to repress gene expression in offspring, then its absence should result in the derepression or upregulation in offspring tissues. And so the profiling analysis um, shown in these three MA plots, um, on the y-axis is the fold change in gene expression comparing between the M plus P minus and their genetically identical but wild type inheritance M plus P plus controls. And I've highlighted um, significantly up or down regulated genes in red or blue. And what you can see is that this altered inheritance results in misexpression, both up and down. And importantly, there's upregulation as we would expect. And so the result of this is that absence of this repressive mark from the sperm inherited genome is causing aberrant upregulation in various um, offspring tissues. 
Oh, and also, um, I, I don't know what the format is, but I'm happy if anybody wants to stop me and ask questions to clarify anything as well. Um, okay, so moving on to the next um, slide, do different tissues upregulate the same or different genes? And so the rationale is that um, the inherited chromatin state, is it sufficient to dictate gene expression in offspring? Or is it more nuanced than that? Is it a combination of the offspring tissue context um, plus the epigenetic inheritance that is determining which genes will be um, expressed? And so to address this question, we looked at the top 300 upregulated gene in each tissue context shown in the Venn diagram. And what you can see is that there's very little overlap, indicating that these different tissues, even though they inherited the same genome, obviously, but also the same altered epigenome, um, they had different sensitivities to upregulation. And we did some gene set analysis to ask like what types of genes are being aberrantly upregulated in the different contexts. And they came from different classes. So um, male germlines had a tendency to turn on intestinal specific genes, while the hermaphrodite um, germline turned on neuronal genes like uh, quite a bit, um, and as well as muscle, muscle specific genes. And so the result of this is that really tissue context is what's dictating which genes are sensitive to upregulation when you lose that H3K27 trimethylation protection on the sperm genome. Um, so moving on to slide 14, um, are genes upregulated specifically from the unprotected sperm genome? Um, and, and the rationale is that if this inherited K27 methylation is directly regulating the genes it's inherited on, um, we refer to this in cis, then loss of this repressive mark should really only, the loss of repression due to loss of this repression mark should only occur from the sperm inherited allele, um, while the oocyte inherited allele that should be remaining K27 methyl positive um, should still retain uh, repression. So I'll just remind everyone a little bit about the, the, what the inheritance, right? So you got a copy of the genome from your mom and a copy of the genome from your dad. So every gene that you have, you have two copies of it, the copy that came in from mom and the copy that came in from dad. And in this particular um, paradigm, the setup, the oocyte allele, the one from mom, came in with this repressive mark on it. And the sperm inherited version came in lacking that mark. So now you have the same gene, you know, two copies of it, um, but one is marked with repressive, repressive mark and the other is lacking it. And the question is, does that sperm allele specifically have a sensitivity to be turned on when this protection is lost? And it does, um, and it does in every tissue context. So here I'm showing you um, box plots of the transcript fold change in the M plus P minus versus the M plus P plus situation. And in red are significantly upregulated or the top, sorry, the top upregulated genes. And in blue are the downregulated genes. So you could just focus on the red boxes. Um, I've stratified these into whether these transcripts emanated from sperm or oocyte alleles. And what you can see is that in each tissue context, 
the sperm allele is the one that's really up being upregulated, while the oocyte allele for most of these genes is not um, being changed, indicating that the oocyte allele is maintaining repression as it as it should. Um, it's really that unprotected sperm allele that is turning on in every tissue context. So moving on to slide um, 15, um, is the inherited H3K27 methyl negative state retained on sperm alleles in M plus P minus adults? Um, so this was really uh, an awesome technique for us, like the, for us to do for the first time. Um, so we used a technique called cut and run, which at the time was very new. Um, it was um, an alternative way of looking at with high resolution at the histone marks across the genome. So typically, um, the technique we have used is called CHIP-seq, chromatin immunoprecipitation followed by sequencing, but it requires a lot of material. And so we would do this on whole worms or whole embryos, um, but you couldn't really dissect out tissues um, by hand and profile them in this way until Cotton Run came out because it allowed for us to do the same type of high-resolution uh, mapping of the epigenetic landscape, um, but with very little starting material. So we hand dissected out these germlines. And remember, these worms are the size of a comma <laughs> in a sentence. So their germlines are very tiny. Um, so it's like micro dissections. Um, and then we profiled them. We profiled them for um, gene expression, but we also profiled them by cut and run for this repressive mark, the H3K27 trimethylation. And we also profiled them for a different mark. Um, this mark is associated with um, actively transcribing genes, and so we kind of refer to it as a quote-unquote active mark, um, and it's called H3K36 trimethylation. And so um, this is uh, the same kind of mark, three methyl groups, but on an amino acid, what is that, 10 amino acids down on lysine 36 um, instead of lysine 27 like our repressive mark is. And um, what we found is that when we looked in the M plus P minus adult germ cells, that have this, you know, sperm-specific allele upregulation that is accompanied by sperm allele-specific enrichment of that active mark and depletion of that repressive mark. So the genes that were upregulated and upregulated specifically from these sperm alleles actually retained that H3K27 trimethyl negative state that they inherited. Um, and so this was a really exciting finding because what this means is that the germ cells of this F1 generation are carrying the epigenetic blueprint of this misexpression. And it raises the possibility that these worms could then package into their sperm and egg this epigenetic blueprint and allowed us to ask the question of whether or not this translates into a persistence of this misregulation in the next generation. And so we could really test it transgenerationally. And so on the next slide, um, slide 16, are the results of that analysis. So we profiled again by um, RNA-seq and cut and run, um, both the expression and chromatin landscape of the F1 adults and their genetically identical F2 offspring. And what you can see, um, if you look at the left box plot uh, circled in gray, 
is that the specific upregulation of the sperm inherited allele is maintained in the F2 generation. So that's really the grand paternal allele um, that is still upregulated while the grand maternal allele is perfectly fine. So this, this program, this epigenetic blueprint passed on to the next generation to maintain this, this pattern of expression. And this was accompanied by the same epigenetic blueprint that the F1s had, the sperm-specific increase in that active mark and the sperm allele-specific depletion of that repressive mark. And we didn't profile um, further generations, but we speculate that, you know, this could go on for a very long time, actually, um, potentially a very long time. Um, and that this, you know, would confer an advantage for, especially for species that reproduce clonally, as C. elegans does, right? You have hermaphrodites as the dominant reproductive members of this species. So they're making little identicals to themselves. So how do you sample different gene expression programs um, to cope with environmental changes that might arise? Well, you can basically create situations where your offspring, yes, they might be genetically identical to you, but they have different gene epigenetic blueprints. So you can actually sample various um, you know, gene expression programs so that some of your offspring might survive some event, um, environmental change that would, would come up. So this, this was very exciting for us. This indicates that, that this histone mark, not only can it be an epigenetic carrier intergenerationally from parents to offspring, but it, it can serve as an epigenetic carrier across several generations transgenerationally. And so I'll just end with the final data slide um, on one test of whether or not this altered inheritance has developmental consequences. So um, F1, M plus P minus worms, they're fertile, um, typically. But we, as I showed you, their germlines upregulate many neuronal genes. And if we push those worms just a little bit harder and um, give them only a half dose of the enzyme PRC2, that's gonna help you know, reestablish the chromatin state when they've inherited an entire genome lacking this repressive mark. If we, if we only allow them to have half a dose of that, then the worms are sterile. And if you look inside their germlines, as shown here, the left is a cut out germline. So you're looking at a whole germline. And on the right, I'm zooming in on a worm um, looking and the green is emanating from the germline. Um, what you can see is that these worms are expressing a neuronal reporter. So this is a gene that should only go on in neurons, UNC119, and it's tagged with green fluorescent protein. And so it is lighting up these germ cells. And when you look at the zoom in picture, you can actually see these very, very bright cells that have processes that are extending from one germ cell to another. So they're actually forming these neuron-like connections with one another. And I've stained them for endogenous markers of, of other neuron-specific genes, and they are turning on this program, and they actually like daisy-chain kind of one germ cell to another. So they're connecting with one another as neurons would. And so we viewed this as um, 
you know, a very serious developmental consequence to um, altering this uh, repressive mark. We imagine the beneficial um, changes to the epigenome that might occur more naturally would have much more subtle effects on um, gene expression. Um, yeah, not converting germ cells to neurons, which would not be um, necessarily beneficial for the species, um, but more subtle effects that would allow them to sample various um, gene expression programs. So to put it all together in our, um, to wrap it up, so in offspring that inherit sperm chromosomes that lack this repressive mark, H3K27 trimethylation, we see inappropriate genes are upregulated specifically from the unprotected sperm alleles. And different genes are upregulated in germline versus somatic tissue. And this is really telling us that tissue context matters. And it was very exciting that when we were really writing this up for um, publication, that we found a paper um, by Hollick et al. in Nature Genetics, published in 2021. And their findings in cultured mammalian cells, um, where they transiently lacked this repressive mark, um, really mirrored a lot of what we were seeing in our um, transgenerational model using C. elegans. So they're looking at, you know, cell maintenance of this epigenetic gene regulation from a parent cell to daughter cells, while we're looking from a parent to a, a offspring. Um, but and yet we're seeing very similar things. So they looked at cell type one um, that has a different transcription factor milieu. And when they lose that protective repressive mark, you get some genes turning on, not all the genes, but some genes. And those genes retain that H3K27 negative state while the other alleles regain the mark. And that's what we found. But if you look over in cell type two that has a different transcription factor milieu, you see a different set of genes that gets upregulated. Perhaps you know, the genes that were upregulated in cell type one are not getting upregulated in cell type two. And it's the genes that were upregulated that are retaining this K27 negative state while the other alleles regain the, the normal pattern of H3K27 trimethylation. So um, just to remind you of the, the title um, that I hope seems less obscure now, um, sperm inherited H3K27 trimethyl-3 epi alleles are transmitted transgenerationally in cysts. So, um, so my work during my PhD really, you know, strove to test whether histone marks were a carrier of epigenetic information across generations that could influence gene expression in offspring. And that had, you know, impact on, on health and development. And then, you know, took it one step further and asked, is it, could it be passed even further? Could this be a perduring change? And, and we found that it was, that this is happening transgenerationally. And so with that, I'd just like to thank you all for, um, you know, listening to this and, um, and to the Science Society and Katerina for inviting me to share this, um, this work with you. And, and of course, to um, Susan Strom. And I really want to highlight um, Taya Egelhofer. She was my co-author on this uh, 2022 paper. Um, she's a fantastic scientist. And she, she was the one who really did all the cut and run. She launched that technique in worms. Um, and we spent a lot of time um, and a lot of germ lines 
a lot of time dissecting germlines to to get to optimizing this. So it, it was really a, a dual effort. Um, so I yeah, thank you. I'll, I'm happy to have any discussion or answer any questions. Well, thank you so much for this amazing talk and this work uh, that you did. And yeah, I wanted to point out, but you did like how much work this must have been. And um, and um, yeah, but um, you probably needed to stay persistent, but uh, turned out into this wonderful projects and results that are quite amazing it's it's so interesting to me when i read this i thought you know we have this list this two parts of evolutionary mechanisms that we find like the scrambling everything up um mixing in a little bit chaos and then uh the, the attempt to like preserve uh, of what happens yeah <laughs> yeah that we have this push and pull in our evolutionary system. I do. Yeah, I think that was a nice way of putting it. I mean, really, like, you have stable, you want to have stable inheritance on one hand, right? You don't want to have too many genetic mutations. You found something that works right now. You want to keep it going, right? You don't, you don't fix what's not broken. But at the same time, things change, the environment changes and pressures change. And so we have to have the ability to mutate our genome in order to sample different strategies. And so that happens over longer evolutionary timescales, but sometimes changes are very rapid <laughs> and happen in a very short timescale. And so I think an alternative strategy might be to sample different gene expression programs using the same genome. Um, same genetic material and that's that can be achieved by epigenetic inheritance and I think the really like exciting idea of epigenetic inheritance you know um, is the idea that you could pass on a little bit of information about how the environment is changing from a parent to prepare the offspring for that impending change so during my PhD, I, I wrote a, a little um, review on a, on, a, on a study where they looked at hyperosmotic stress. So when worms get exposed to salty conditions, you know, it can kill them if they get exposed to salty conditions. Um, but in certain populations, I think like they might be intertidal, like kind of near the ocean or something like that. The ocean could come up and expose them to the salty condition. Well, if the parental generation started to get slightly salty conditions, they would start putting different goodies into their eggs that would alter the gene expression in the offspring such that they would be resilient against the really salty conditions that were predicted <laughs> by the parent getting a little bit of salt, like a little bit of water coming up with salt. Now that predicted that the offspring were gonna get potentially really hit with salty conditions. And so they were able to adapt in that one generation to ensure that their offspring would survive that impending environmental switch. And so I think it's a nice example of how, how this quick acting um, tool that's on top of our genome might be able to respond, you know, more quickly um, 
than than just natural mutation accumulation. Yeah, uh, that's a really that's a really interesting example. Thank you for mentioning that. And I read, I think it was. I forgot who it was um, in like an article in general about epigenetics, like the genetic code is like for people that are more involved in coding and stuff. I thought that was a really cool way of describing that's the algorithm, like the hard code you write with, like the algorithm you give the system and then the epigenetics is kind of um, the analog data that you put into like a neural net or machine learning or something that then you know spits something out <laughs> like a reaction <laughs> out. <laughs> i don't know but i kind of thought it was an interesting way for like people out of biology to kind yeah of rest yeah it. Was, yeah it's interesting i think metaphors are helpful with will... these complicated systems <laughs> yeah yeah so I feel like whenever we dig more, we'll find more levels of complexity. Do you think we will find the additional mechanisms? Like we had the genetic code, the huge breakthrough, then epigenetics. Like, I, you know, this is on Clubhouse, it's quite informal. Do you think there will be another complex levels that we will figure out maybe in 10 years or so? I don't know. I'm just always thinking yeah. the more we dig, the more we'll find. To yeah, it's. It's true. I, I, I mean, sure. Yeah. I, I can imagine that. I mean, there's, I feel like what we've, what we understand, what we've discovered is minimal, <laughs> you know, we'll never be out of a job. Basically <laughs> there will always be more to try and understand because it's so complex. So yes, I, I think that there are going to be many new levels that we unveil, um, as, as science goes on trying to understand how we work. Um, and I look forward to those big steps in, in discoveries. I don't know what that might look like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I, agree. I, I imagine that we will. <laughs> yeah. I think the only limit is people that are willing to pay us, but the things we have to solve, yeah. I think. <laughs> and our ability to think a bit outside the box because it's it's tough we we sort of get into our mindset of what what the regulation is but you know we have to have those people that come in and pioneer into a new way a new possibility of thinking that shifts you know that paradigm shifts how we think about things and that's that doesn't happen all that often you know so it really depends on having people out there doing this kind of work passing it on to the next generation where they're they're asking those really paradigm shifting pushing the boundaries of what we already know and not letting what we know prevent them from asking questions that are bigger and different yeah 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 i think that's interesting and you what you said like reminds me of an article i read earlier today just you know over um that uh, new genetic therapies they were attempting um, on little children with very severe epilepsy that it turned into brain swelling and uh, people died. Like, I don't think we know enough yet to go and do those steps. What do you think? Do you think we can, you know, not just genetic code, like how far is a way to 
use like epigenetic mechanisms to like treat people do you do you think that's that's still yeah i mean there are some epigenetic therapies out there for cancer and clinical i mean this was a while ago so um maybe they're actually fda approved at this point i don't know but there were several um epigenetic therapies for cancer because the enzyme i talked about today prc2 um, is involved in a lot of cancers um, you know when you can regulate gene expression you don't necessarily need to mutate an oncogene you could just activate it or turn off genes that are you know safeguards um, epigenetically without even modifying the the gene sequence so i do think that there's the potential for epigenetic regulation so rather than messing with the genetic code um, can we modify just the way the gene is deployed? Um, I think the technology, you know, I've been in the aging field now for two years, so I, I, um, I'm not completely up to date on the epigenetic field um, at this time. Um, but I think that we would need to come quite a ways in order to target specific genes for um, this epigenetic regulation. Like at the time, you know, a couple years back, we had tools um, to in, you know, in model systems where you could bring the epigenetic machinery, either the repressive machinery or the activating machinery and target it to particular genetic locations. So to target this gene for upregulation or repression. And so I imagine therapies that are more specific, you would be doing something like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's possible, um, you know, we've, I mean, we now have like MRNA therapies you could inject with MRNA that would express these proteins. You have the protein that's going to tar, you have the RNA that's going to target it to a particular locus and you have the expression of the machinery that will bring, um, that RNA will target that machinery to that locus. So I think there's a lot of work probably that needs to be done in model systems and preclinical trials and then finding the right application um, for these kind of therapies to roll out. But I definitely think it's a possibility. So, uh, Kiyomi, um, this is Ali. Just one more uh, question. Uh, oh, yeah, um, oh. I just wanted to ask, do you still think that we kind of go away from um, changing the genetic code also for, I mean, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it would go into the germline, right? But based on your data, if we start messing with also epigenetic mechanism, let's say in young children or so on, do you think there will be a risk that we are messing with evolution basically just, you know, from the ethical perspective? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really about whether it's hitting the germline, right? But yeah, I mean, definitely there's, you, you have to consider all of those things, I, I imagine, you know, anytime you're going to be messing with the germline. And, and now this work is really indicating that, you know, it's, you don't just have to mess with the genetic code, you can mess with the epigenetic code, and that's going to change how things are deployed in offspring. And therefore, and that could have long term, so multi generational effects. So we have to tread, you know, carefully, um, anytime we're going to be manipulating the germline. I think as we reveal more about um, about this process, we'll appreciate that the choices that we make all the time are sort of doing something similar. Um, you know, we're we may be you know 
influencing the epigenetics in our sperm and egg right now just by the choices that we're making. Um, so, you know, going in and manipulating those things directly is, you know, where you need to bring in the ethical considerations. But I think it's, we'll, we'll understand more about how this is happening naturally and whether we can move in in a more targeted um, approach. But for sure, I mean, there's, there's ethical considerations around, around all of that that we will have to be very careful to mind. Yeah, thank you. And Ali, go ahead, ask your question. Yeah, Kiyomi, thank you for your presentation. Um, I, um, I, I'm trying to kind of phrase this question, and <clears throat> it's kind of difficult to ask it because I'm not quite sure how to ask it. So when we talk about epigenetic, and uh, we are talking about, of course, the, the impact of the environment, and uh, uh, during the life of an organism. Now, let me just take it to, for example. We let's say people talk about the effect of uh, trauma and the effect of, let's say, horrible emotional uh, uh, experience that an individual may go through. In this particular case, there is no outside, you know impact in terms of, let's say, a chemical uh, exposure to chemicals, and yeah. let's say, yeah. uh, situations like that. So in this, the, the trauma and emotional are really your thoughts, your emotions are going to impact your internal, inside hormonal and the chemical uh, uh, impact or your own body. So there's no outside no outside environment is involved. It's just you, your emotions, your body, and, and the body's reaction, chemically, hormonal, to the, the feelings. Now, how would that would come into to play? Uh, uh, what are your thoughts about this? Because people talk about this generational trauma, yeah. particularly in the woo-woo land, you know, they yeah. try to heal you from this or that. Uh, so what do you, how does that would work in terms of the uh, epigenetic uh, kind of uh, science? Um, well, I can envision that that's totally possible. I mean, I, I mean, our thoughts change our hormones. Our hormones regulate like all of our genome practically. Um, so when we have certain thoughts and certain emotions, like there is a chemical exposure. It's just internally generated, right? So, um, I mean, we can measure cortisol in, you know, we, in, in experiments and you have people visualize things, you can measure changes, physiological changes in their body. Um, and those, you know, the hormones, hormones affect your germ lines. And, um, you know, so I could definitely see how there's a mechanism through which just mind state, mental state, status and an emotional state can drive very different physiological um, environments within our body that are going to translate into changes in gene expression. And those gene expression changes will be accompanied by epigenetic, you know, changes and epigenetic regulation. And so, yes, there, I could, I could definitely envision how something that was very traumatizing, um, could influence the epigenetics 
of an individual. And, you know, again, you know, extrapolating potentially um, if that influenced the epigenetics in the sperm or egg, then that, yeah, that would have the capability of passing a piece of that, you know, memory to, to the next generation and how it would manifest. I don't know, but um, I don't think we could eliminate that as a possibility. Yeah, thank you for that question. You, it's very interesting. And uh, Ms. Nancy, did you have a question? Welcome. Hello. Thank Hi. you so much. Hello, everybody. Yes, I have a question, and maybe it's a very silly question, but um, what I was trying to understand is when you uh, can do this in such an early stage uh, and see what the inheritance is and so, is it then possible uh, to... Uh, how you say it, find diseases in this early stage and prevent, or is it nothing to do with this? You talked about that there are uh, programs or, or uh, they are busy with, um, that they can locate uh, the certain, uh, how you say, the disease and capture it so they won't affect what's around it. And I was wondering, just, just maybe a stupid question, but I, I thought I'd just ask it because it's on my mm -hmm. mind a long time. If it is possible, if you are in this early stage, that is, for example, cancer, that you can, uh, okay, because you have the uh, mother and the father, that you can uh, locate it or see it and, and then uh, change it or, or uh, alter it, or uh, I don't have the right words for it, but maybe you can help me with that. But is that yeah. uh, a logic uh, question or is that uh, something that it's totally nothing has to do with this? <laughs> I think, I think it's a fantastic question. I, I do. Oh, thank you. So anywhere where we think epigenetics might be playing a role, right? Mm -hmm. And the changes, regardless of the initiating event, if we were to understand, so this is all based on how much we understand. If there's a disease state that initiates an epigenetic change that is part of the pathology of that disease, if we have a way to target that change, and before it snowballs and progresses mm -hmm. the pathology further, then that's a, an excellent, in my opinion, you know, avenue yeah. for therapeutics. And so, but that said, I, I mean, so much has to be understood to go there. You would have to demonstrate that the changes mm -hmm. that occur epigenetically during this disease progression, you know, from the early stages yes. to that, that is driving the pathology forward and that fixing it prevents that. And so you'd have to study this in lower model organisms, take it up to preclinical, you know, mouse models, and then all the way up to human, you know, and also mm -hmm. be understanding the human context. So you'd, you'd have to have like tissue samples and things like that. We'd have to really have a good understanding of how the epigenetics is playing that role. And then we'd have to have the tools and technologies to go in in a targeted manner, right? That was kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. and only affect those parts that are altered because um, we don't want to just mess with the whole epigenome. We'd, we'd exactly. ideally be using a very targeted approach. So I think it's a, yeah, an insightful question. So thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you. Because there is a program for that, it's a software you said, you've talked about it, but I'm not yeah. sure how far you are that you already worked with a program like that. It only targets the, the six the cells, like no. the surroundings. No, we, we didn't go into that. So like the whole, oh. I don't want to talk 
you know, poorly on the research I just presented, but we used a very sledgehammer approach to really get at testing, right? We wiped this mark from in the entire sperm genome to really test the question, because this was really up for debate, whether or not histone marks were epigenetic carriers across generations. And so we used that sledgehammer approach, but now it's time to come in with a more elegant <laughs> approach yeah. and, and test these more targeted, um, targeted effects, yeah. So you're in an early stage also then, if I correct, I'm, I'm correct, or are you a little bit further? Because um, now we, on Clubhouse, now we know about this because you share it with us. But uh, uh, of course, you, it's already a long time. Maybe you're yeah. with this. Oh, you mean early stage in my career of this research? Yeah, and now you come with it, and now we're so many years further, and then yeah. uh, everything changes. Maybe you all yeah. uh, worked with it. So I've, I've actually moved away from this field now. I, I mean, I'd like uh. to reincorporate some of it into my research. So now I'm um, actually at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. And mm -hmm. so um, I'm, I'm, my research is, is in a completely different field. I'm trying to understand uh. how metabolism impacts the aging process and age-related diseases. Um, oh, okay. And yeah, maybe eventually good. I'll fold in epigenetics back in there, but I, I haven't yet. <laughs> well, okay, thank you so much for letting me ask this question. And yes, I'm thank glad you. to replay, because I will show it to my friend, he's a biochemist, and he, is, he's he has that program at this moment that only captures fine to disease cells and then capture only the cells uh, to destroy that or take that out and then the rest is intact you know like fantastic yeah that that thing and that's on this moment they're very uh how you say it um expanding it so therefore it was my interest and therefore i'm glad it's a replay and i was for sure uh, show him this replay that he can see if it's something for him too so thank you so much for that i could share this and uh so, uh, and good luck with everything, and I will listen in for sure. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, Kiyomi, I think you have to go, right? Yes, uh, I do. Already... I have to go run and to that's... a meeting real quick. Yes, I'm sorry. We went six minutes later. I promise oh, That's okay. You. This was super fun. I thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been, it's been great. And thank you for the great questions, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much. And please come back maybe next year and share the work you're currently doing. Must be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Enjoy your day. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming, uh, asking questions. I think uh, this was, for, at least I think it was a really interesting discussion. And um, yeah, uh, if you like discussion like this, just follow the club, we will have more. Um, the next one will be on Thursday. We will actually have two, one at 9 a.m. EST, Dr. Finoy. Uh, he um, is doing deep brain stimulations in humans, like in patients, to treat depression. And he will talk about the results of uh, these studies. And um, in the evening at 9 p.m. EST on Thursday, we'll have Dr. Longo how um, he induced a fasting mimicking diet. So you don't really fast, it's just taking some of the fasting uh, uh, points basically and um, how this type of diet reduced neuroinflammation. And, and um, then we'll have on Friday, Dr. Batson uh, about his theories of consciousness 
and he theorizes that consciousness is a memory system. So it will be an interesting discussion next week. We'll have a little bit less rooms, uh, basically just uh, two because I'm traveling. So I'm doing this while traveling. Um, uh, a room on Wednesday and then next Friday. So, but anyways, check out the club and um, yeah, thank you so much for coming and I hope I hear you all back soon. Thank you. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone, thank you.